Well, this morning, we are um, continuing in our study through the life of Abraham. I have a question. How many of you have ever heard of Lake Itasca? None. (laughs) It's okay. It's a lake in Minnesota with a total surface area that's only about one quarter the size of Squawpan. And it would be a completely unremarkable body of water, except for the fact that this small lake is the birthplace and the headwaters of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River flows out of Lake Itasca, and it flows uninterrupted from that point for over 2,300 miles south to the spot where it flows out into the Gulf of Mexico. Lots of good things come out of Minnesota. Right, Ron? That's true. Ron Sr., our Minnesotan. He he knew where Lake Itasca was. He was just being modest. He didn't want to show off his knowledge. Guys, the Mississippi River begins as a trickle that you could jump over. But in the lower reaches of the river, it can be over two miles wide in places. Amazingly, it takes approximately three months for water leaving Lake Itasca at a rate of six cubic feet per second to reach the Gulf of Mexico, where it discharges at a rate, depending on weather conditions that year, at around 650 to 700,000 cubic feet per second. That's seven times the volume of Niagara Falls every second. It's 11 times greater even than the mighty Aroostook, where it discharges into the St. John. (laughs) From its humble beginnings at Lake Itasca, the Mississippi swells into a churning, muddy, rolling behemoth of a river that surges along its course, irrigating farms, redefining state boundaries, and supporting all kinds of life as it barrels along unstoppably towards the Gulf. Now, I mention Lake Itasca this morning because it reminds me of this man that we find in our Bibles named Abram. This man would later be renamed Abraham by God. And Lake Itasca reminds me of him because although today Christianity is a massive worldwide movement. It is, by stats, the largest world religion. If we were to follow that rolling, deep, wild, unpredictable current of the Spirit's movement, in which, by the way, we are all caught up and born along, if we trace that movement all the way back to its headwaters, we would find this one small man named Abram who lived not in Minnesota, but in Ur of the Chaldees. He is the man who Paul calls, in Romans 4.11, the father of all who believe. And this morning, we're going to go back upstream to Genesis 12, where we find the very beginnings of the church. So we're going to go back to Genesis 12, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. And we'll stop right there this morning. The first thing I want to establish this morning is that although most of us in the church are probably not descended from Abraham in the genealogical sense, Nevertheless, Scripture says that we are, by faith, children of Abraham. Paul makes this argument, for example, in Romans 9, where he writes, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So according to verse 7, not everyone who is descended from Abraham in the genealogical sense can truly be counted as children of Abraham because they don't share the faith of Abraham. There's a wonderful truth in the midst of this, by the way. Uh, When we look over the, the sad course of human history, And even the course of our own country's history, there is the sad fact that down through the years, many, many, many people have proclaimed pride in their own blood. They've looked upon their tribe, their kind, and they've said, this is right and good, and I will value you based on how closely you approximate that. What this is saying is that your standing with God has nothing to do with your blood, and it has everything to do with the blood of Christ. Galatians, Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every human impulse towards ethnocentric pride, whatever that is, is killed and put to death when we come to understand the gospel. Pride in our blood is antithetical to the gospel, which trains us to have pride only in the blood of Christ. That's the only thing we can brag about. And so what we need to know is that in order to be children of Abraham, we don't need to be from a certain 
genealogical line. All of humanity can claim to be offspring of Abraham if they share the faith that Abraham held. That's what it means to be a child of Abraham. And this is not a small point. We've been trying to get the worship team to do the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Should I join the worship team? What do you guys think? (laughs) Dave Whitaker, you are fired. (laughs) He doesn't even want that job. Dave Whitaker, please come back. Don't worry, I'm not going to join the worship team. Now, that song, although silly, has at its heart a profound truth. Father Abraham has had all kinds of offspring. I'm one of them. You're one of them because we share the faith of Abraham. That's a wonderful thing to believe and see. Those who, like Abraham, base their right standing with God on a faith in the promises of God are more truly Abraham's children, at least in the way God reckons things, than those who are born into the line and lineage of Abraham by natural descent. I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I also don't want to skip it because so much of Abraham's significance for us in the church today will be tied to him being the first in a long, unbroken line of human beings who were brought into a special saving relationship with God, a relationship that was based upon a believing of God in his promises. And I want us to see and celebrate together that we today are the beneficiaries of the promise God gave to Abraham that in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. A couple years ago, my brother Job, he lives in Mississippi. He sent all of us brothers one of those, uh, what are they, like those ancestry DNA tests you can do the swab or whatever, and they send it away and they'll send you back what you are. I think he suspected one of us wasn't born to our parents. (laughs) I think it was his way of like, I need to confirm some things. No. But we all took the test, the results came back, and according to my results, guys, I don't have any of Abraham's genealogy in me, not even a single drop that I can see. Sarah's results were much more interesting than mine, Uh, but if you're interested in that, we can talk later. But I'm not here to talk about my, me, I want to talk about Abraham this morning. But I just bring that up to say this. When it says here that when God said to Abraham, at the very beginning, by the way, guys, at the very beginning, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Guys, we are living in the midst of that blessing. All of my ancestors were part of those other families. Uh, When Sarah and I lived in California, we had very dear friends, Jeremy and Amy, and they worked at a camp where they ministered to children who were coming out of the foster care system. Tragic stories, stories that just broke our heart to hear them. 
And Jeremy and Amy just had this incredible heart for these kids. And many of them in foster care had hoped to be adopted, but there there was so much trauma, it was very hard to find families who would take them. And Jeremy and Amy um, knew enough of these kids, even kids who had been adopted, who felt in their heart of hearts like they were their parents' plan B. Um, they, they had tried to have a family they couldn't, so then they adopted, which is great, by the way. That's not a knock on that idea. That's wonderful. I love people who adopt children. But Jeremy and Amy said, hey, let's do this. Let's do it different. Before we ever even try to have children of our own, let's adopt children. That way we can tell them you were plan A. They just had seen this story so many times. So many kids had it in their mind. We were plan B, and they felt less special. Brothers and sisters, if you are of Italian, English, French, Russian, Swahili, I don't care, any sort of descent, you are not God's plan B. (laughs) He did not try this Old Testament thing, and now I guess we'll try you other people. No, at the very beginning, when God was going to call Abraham into a special covenantal relationship that extends even now to us here at State Road, he said to Abraham at the very moment that that was started, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God had in view the whole orb of the earth and this patchwork quilt of cultures and languages. He saw it all. And his plan was through Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, through Jesus, to bless all the peoples of the earth, to draw them all. And we're told in Revelations that around the throne in glory, there will be people from every tribe and every language. Amen. Amen. Our God is not a tribal God. And your access to him is not limited by who your parents were. You can be his, and he can be your God. So again, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I also don't want to skip it, because it is so significant. In Galatians 3, Paul puts it like this, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. To be a son of someone is to have that person's traits. To be the son of God is to share in the character of God. To be a son of Abraham is to display a character quality of Abraham, namely the quality of his faith. Everyone who shows that kind of faith is showing himself to be like Abraham in the sense that Abraham too had that faith. In John 8, a portion of scripture that I referenced last week, Jesus addressed this very issue with those who claim to be children of Abraham by natural descent, but whose faith was in their own law-keeping abilities rather than a God who justifies the ungodly. Remember last week we talked about what saves Abraham. And in Genesis 15, we're told that 
Abraham believed God, and this was counted to him as righteousness. He was not righteous in fact, but his faith in a God who justifies the ungodly was credited to him as righteousness. And so here, Jesus is talking to the sons of Abraham in the genealogical sense. These are men who could trace their 23andMe ancestry back to Abraham, But their faith is very different than the faith Abraham had. Their faith is in their own ability to keep the law. When they come to God, essentially they're saying to God, you owe me. I've done everything you've commanded, and now you owe me something. And that's very different from how Abraham, the faith Abraham held. So here's what Jesus says to these men who mistakenly believed that their status as sons of Abraham gave them special standing with God. Jesus said this, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, in portions of this exchange, which if we read the whole thing, John 8, Jesus agrees with these men on two occasions that they are in the line and lineage by natural descent from Abraham. But he makes it clear that that gives them no special standing with God. Again, to quote Paul in Romans 9, not everyone born in the line of Abraham is of Abraham. In the final analysis, what this teaches us is that entrance to the kingdom or being excluded from that same kingdom will not be based on our family of origin, or our race, or anything in our physical makeup or background, but simply on this. Do you trust God to justify the ungodly? Do you have a faith in Jesus? Have you put your trust in Jesus for salvation? Or is it resting in something else? No matter who you are, no matter what your background, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you. No matter your family tree. Believe me when I say it because they're not my words, they're God's. You can be a child of God. You can be a son or daughter of Abraham simply by sharing the faith that he held and pioneered. Now, some people might say, in what sense is Abraham an Itasca kind of a human being? Weren't there other believers before Abraham? Yes, there were. Lots of them. Loads of them. (laughs) What I mean there is that also there's more water north of Lake Itasca. (laughs) It's just that it's it's not connected in the same way. Uh, God is, and we're going to talk about this in coming weeks, God is going to Invite Abraham into relationship with him on the basis of covenant. That's an important part here. There's an unbroken covenant that extends out from Abraham to our current day. 
Why God chose to start it then with that guy, I don't know. His ways are mysterious. I, don't, I can't sound the depths of that. But that's where it all starts. But the great thing I want us to know is that you can jump into that river. <laughs> There's nothing keeping you from doing it. The invitation is in front of you. But here's some other things I want us to see. There's two things principally. Uh, there is in the Bible, those who study the Bible, the kind of the $5 term for Bible study is hermeneutics. And hermeneutics just means that, the study of God's Word, the study of the Bible. And there's a hermeneutical principle, which is the law of first mention. If you come up with some concept or some idea, some theme in the Bible, one of the really helpful things to do is to go back to the first place where that's ever mentioned. And sometimes it's very eye-opening what, uh, what God shows through the first mention of that thing. Now, if I understand Abraham's significance correctly, this is really the birth of the church. This is the birth of God's special people, that people within a people. And so when we go all the way back to the headwaters of the church, what truths do we find there that should govern and animate our church life today? Well, I have a couple one is this, uh, Abraham, uh, many writers will describe him as a pioneer of the faith, and that's true. He was also, though, guys, a pioneer in the truest sense, in the American sense, like in the covered wagon going over the mountains with, <laughs> with nothing but some resolve and a faith in God kind of a sense. Uh, when you think about what he is commanded to do, God says, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house. Guys, that is cut ties with every support system you have and come to a place where you must rely completely and only on me. Get your hound dog and go up over the Appalachians. <laughs> that's, that's essentially what the command, that, that's not scripture. Don't quote me on that. In the midweek email this week, if you get the midweek email, I was telling about a tradition. I never participated in this tradition because I'm a law and order kind of human being. I tend to obey laws. And also because it's just downright terrifying to me. But where I went to college in western New York, right next to my dorm was the athletic complex. And in that athletic complex, there was a, a pool, a full-sized Olympic pool. And something the guys in my dorm loved to do, it was actually kind of a rite of passage, is they would somehow break into the athletic complex after it was shut down for the night. They would watch for the security guard to do his loop. And then when he walked away, they'd go over and break in. And it was the tradition, they couldn't turn on any lights because they'd be discovered, but they would go swimming in the dark. But this is the scary part. What they liked to do was climb up onto the high dive in the dark and dive off it into the water. Guys, it was so dark in there, I was told, you could basically develop film. I mean, you couldn't see anything. And they would inch their way out onto the board until their toes felt the edge. 
And then they would stand there in the inky black darkness and go, nobody's down there, right? Can you imagine in total darkness not being able to gauge the distance to where the water is or where you take your last breath before you hit the water? It was the tradition to just dive into the darkness until you get the water. I never did it. That's terrifying. That's crazy. But when God says to Abraham, not only do I want you to leave all that's known, but I'm going to take you someplace and I'm not going to tell you where it is. Come follow me in that kind of a way. Guys, that is a terrifying loss of control. Or a joyous release of control. I don't know what feelings Abraham had or Sarai had. Try, I'm not going to even say husbands, imagine telling your wives. Wives, tell your husband. Imagine telling your spouse, here's what we're doing. <laughs> imagine that conversation, guys. Let's not gloss over these words and lose sight of the humanity that actually lived these words out. This is an amazing faith that Abraham had. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Come with me, follow me, and just trust where I'm taking you is good. It's needed. Leave your country. Leave your kindred. Which, by the way, there's a whole world of ideas in that word kindred. Leave your culture. Leave your language. Leave the customs, the networks of relationships that you have developed and built. This man is 75 years old. He's not a stranger in his neighborhood. He knows where to go when things are needed. And God is saying, leave all of that. And then lastly, he says, leave your father's house. There's an order here. Leave your country. Leave your kind leave your dad's house. Come away with me. Depend upon me, God says. Now, I have to believe in a room this size full of Jesus followers that there is somebody right now in the midst of our fellowship who is feeling the Lord's tug on your heart to go do something. And it's scaring you because it involves a leaving behind many things on which you lean. I bet that exists in this room. And if that is you, do not look away from Abraham. This is the way forward. Risk is right. Trusting God is correct. If Abraham had stayed in Ur of the Chaldees, he would have become a muddy puddle water of a Lake Itasca that never flowed out into this. God would have called another. 
God would not have been stopped, but Abraham would have missed out on the absolute river of blessings that he jumped into by going. Matthew 19, 29 says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I don't think I'm talking to everyone in this room right now, but if I'm talking to you, go. Do it. 100% follow God's lead. Here's the second thing I want you to see here at the headwaters of the church. God makes some wonderful promises to Abraham about ways that he's going to bless him. But please notice that in the midst of that language, there is the clear, clear expectation from God that by blessing Abraham, Abraham would be the means of blessing many, many, many others. Consider this. Here are my notes. For some reason, I didn't put the passage itself. But look at verses 2 through 3, I think it is. Yeah. This is what God says to Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name, and your name great, so that... Guys, if you're in the habits of marking up your Bibles underline or put a box around that so that. It says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. <laughs> I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then there's that line again, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is not an isolated verse either. Consider the words of Psalm 86, 8 through 9. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 22, 27, at the ends, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 86, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So church family, we have hiked our way this morning all the way up to the very headwaters of the church. And one of the sparkling truths that we find there is this, you have been blessed so that you might be a blessing. One last passage of scripture that makes this point. Psalm, 60, Psalm 67 says this, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. 
May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest, God. Our God blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Again, if you go through those verses in Psalm 67, underline all those, time, those two times where it says, so that. God's blessing upon his people has been given to us that others might be drawn to and might be served well. So this is the main point I want to stress in closing this morning. God blesses his people for the sake of all the families of the earth, for the nations, and also your neighbor. This was the foundational truth that God spoke to Abraham when he called him out of his land. And that truth runs right through Scripture, and it remains a foundational truth at the heart of the church all these miles downstream. We believe, because God in his word tells us so, that all Christians have been created by God to worship him through service. God's love is made real when Christians use their gifts to be a blessing and a help to others. This was a theme that Isaiah and others picked up on in words like, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is almost exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 67 that I just read. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth. God promises blessing to his people because he wants them to be a blessing to the families of the earth. God's blessings are not just for us but they are also through us to others. Why has God given you a car? Why has God given us this building? Why has God brought together this collection of people in this church at this time? <laughs> guys, chief among the blessings in my life are you guys. And we together, I hope and pray, are a blessing to many who remain outside. I hope there are many worshiping with us here at State Road next year who this year would be surprised to hear it. <laughs> we exist to image forth God in the midst of these days in this place, to be a blessing to those who are outside, to make clear the way of salvation to people who are lost, and to show them, point them towards a more excellent way a life that is marked by obedience to the commands of God. Much of the Christian life is learning to find our joy in the joy of others. Uh, so much of my advice to married couples and couples before they get married is one of the keys in marriage is finding your joy in the joy of your spouse. And the enemy of so much that we hope to see in the church is selfishness. Abraham, I think, in venturing out the way he did, uh, models for us a remarkable self-sacrificing 
belief in God that sought his joy in the joy of us, the blessing to the, the nations. God blesses his people for the sake of that mission. And what that means for our church, if our church life is to be marked by spiritual vitality, power, and rich, meaningful purpose, it will come, I believe, in part, only if we share God's heart for his cause. If God blesses his people so that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, then God is most likely to bless us when we are planning and longing and praying to be a part of that very thing. And when we lose our way, when we lose sight of that great central mission and purpose to our church life, we become a puddle, not a Lake Itasca, not a continuation of the flow. If God wants to be a blessing to the nations through his people, the church, then he will bless a church that shares his passion for reaching the lost. He will bless the church that's pouring itself out in that way. And when we move towards the unreached around the globe and the unbeliever next door, we are not earning God's blessings. This is not a transactional thing I'm describing. However, what we are doing is we are leaping into the river of blessings that is already flowing there. God's will is more unstoppable than the Mississippi. (laughs) It is just chugging along like a freight train. It cannot be stopped. You can't derail this thing, but you can jump in. And that's what Abraham did. And that's what we're called to do. This is what God is doing. You can join him in the doing of it or you can become an irrelevant human being. We can become an irrelevant church. It's a point I've made many times over the years here at State Road. If we are not a praying people, God will not be defeated or thwarted or stopped. He'll just raise up another church that will pray. If we are not a people who open our mouths about the hope we have in Jesus and speak to lost people about how they too can be saved, those people will not go unsaved, but God will raise up another church. The choice for us as individual Christians and as a church family is will we join God and what he is doing the way Abraham did? Or will we just kind of hang around in Ur of the Chaldees and enjoy our time here? I am uh, I'm blessed. I think I have a... Uh, I just am so blessed by God to hold a rare place in church life. Uh, I don't know why God has been so kind to me to give me friends like you guys. But I hear so many stories. Um, I'm just privileged. I'm a well-positioned person to hear stories (laughs) about what God is doing here at State Road. Many of you are jumping in to that river of blessings. It's amazing to see. It's fun to watch. I personally am challenged. I just want to be more like some of you. 
And I'm glad to be raising kids in the midst of such believers. And I'm excited about what God is doing here at State Road. But it's good for all of us to hike up here to the headwaters and see again this truth. That right there at the very beginning, Abraham was called into a special relationship with God so that through Abraham, God would bless other people. Thinking back to Lake Itasca and the Mississippi River, I'm reminded of John 7, 37 through 38, where Jesus says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Brothers and sisters, we are the means by which God desires to pour out the Holy Spirit and the hope of salvation into a dry and thirsty world. We have been sent out with the stream of living water flowing from our hearts for the purpose of giving life in an absolute desert wasteland of this fallen world. Let's go do it. Amen? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Abraham's incredible example of faith his willingness to walk on the earth in a way that leaned completely on you for dependence. God, in calling him, you caused him to let go of some other things that he might have been tempted to value more highly than your calling on his life. And Father, we thank you again for his uh, example in the way that he responded. It just simply says, so he went. Father, give us a spirit that is quick to obey in the same way Abraham did. Father, we are grateful that there is nothing that prevents us from coming to you and becoming one of yours. God, there is nothing. There is nothing disqualifying in any of us. Father, we can be made right in your eyes. We can be justified based solely on what Jesus did for us. And Father, we praise you for that, that you are a God of all peoples, and that around your throne and glory, there will be people from every tribe, every language, every group, brought into a sweet, unified agreement around the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would grow in us that faith of Abraham, that we would die to any fallen impulse to put our faith in ourselves. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that in our hearts we would trust more and more in what Jesus did for us and rest in and settle into our identity as your children on the basis of what Jesus did for us. Father, thank you for Abraham. Thank you for his example. Thank you for speaking to us in this way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.